Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Good morning, church. Uh, We're going to be moving through three different passages this morning. First one is Revelation 6, 1 to 17. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. His rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on a conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. This rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. This rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there was before me a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everybody else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath had come, and who can withstand it? Uh, Revelation 8, 1-5 When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. The last reading is from uh, Revelation 11, 15 to 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the word of the Lord. A lot to navigate there, thank you. Hopefully you can, you could track with that a little bit. Um, I realise it's a lot, we're covering a lot this morning, so buckle in. Um, we're sort of running through a whole section of scripture. Um, if you want to have your Bibles open, I would really, really recommend it this morning because we haven't even, I know you think, wow, really? We haven't even covered even a half of actually the text that we're looking at across um, this morning. So if you, can, if you have your Bible open, you will see that we started at chapter 6. We're going to look all the way through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. We've already done chapter 12 and chapter 13, you'll be glad to know. We're going to look at chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16. So, you can see what we're up against. But there's a reason and it'll all become clear. But before we get going, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you quickly realize that you don't speak the language that you need. Maybe a foreign holiday, maybe you've been in that situation where you just want to buy a French baguette and you cannot communicate to the person what you want. On one level, you kind of understand each other, you've got the human connection, but you just can't find the words you need. It might be with your teenager, it's my my three-year-old for me. We just can't quite get each other. Something is lost in translation and it gets really frustrating. I'm going to let you into a confession this morning. I, I did languages at school, I did German and French all the way through school, and I made the very silly mistake of thinking that getting a B in my GCSE French was enough to do an AS level in French. And I can assure you now, on reflection, that was not enough. And I came out of my French-speaking exam with the lowest possible grade you can get. It wasn't even classified It was a U. I got a U in my French-speaking AS level. Now, in my defense, I got a B in my French writing and reading. Very strange, I know. But something for me just did not translate in that context. And on one level, I understood French. There's something I really did get about it, and I loved it. And then on the other level, I really didn't. I clearly didn't. I got a U, and I very quickly dropped it and cracked on with the rest of my A-levels. In Revelation, we, we sometimes get a bit of this feeling. You know, on one level, we've been tracking through this book for a while now, and on one level, I, I sense that in the room that we get, we get the themes that are being explored in this text. We get the effect of the dragon as we're looking at what, what it means, what it feels like for Satan to have influence 
in our worlds. We, we know what it feels like to live in Babylon, the metaphor Johnny unpacked for us last week. We know what it means to live in a godless environment. We understand the hope of the child, of the woman, of that metaphor. We deeply understand these themes, but through the book of Revelation, the way that it can be spoken about, it feels like it's speaking another language, doesn't it? We're reading this text this morning, and you might be sat there thinking, I've got no idea what this is talking about. Well, you're not alone. And that is why we want to do a bit of translation this morning. Because I think some of these passages have been really misunderstood in the past, and it's really important that we grapple with them because they're fundamental for us and our role as the church of God in these times. So we're going to do some translation, if you're up for it. But let me first orientate you. We've been spending, obviously, a long time in this book. It's a very precious gift to us. So we've been enjoying it. We started in the seven churches, and we we looked at what God was saying to the the church, the global church, now and then. We moved on to the the focus, the epicenter of this book that everything orientates around. The slain lamb, seated victorious on the throne. Everything else orbits in this book around that vision. And then this mysterious scroll opening up, containing God's plan for bringing about his kingdom to earth. The history of earth. This scroll contains the whole picture, the whole picture in signs and in symbols, metaphors to understand what's going on in our world. It's been very clear to us already that we're in a clashing of kingdoms. We are living in the midst of a war. And... These signs and symbols across the second half of the book, you know, we've been unpacking some of them over the last couple of weeks. Mark took us, gave us a lens into the imagery around the dragon, around Satan, and his intention to unleash evil in the world, a plan ultimately undermined by the slain lamb on the throne. Johnny took us through the metaphor of Babylon, helping us to understand why it's so hard. If, if, if the lamb is on the throne, why is it so hard for us to live as Christians today, we looked at this metaphor of Babylon that isn't just one place, it's timeless. The idea of a city that wants to build a name for itself without God, independent of him. We're living in Babylon today. And this morning, I, I've been given the task of unpacking the sevens, the sevens. The series of sevens that you might have noticed some of the themes of as we were reading. You would definitely notice it if you read the whole passage. We start, well, really we start in the seals and then we move through with a few interludes in the middle. We move through to the seven trumpets and then finally the seven bowls or the seven plagues. And we're going to be looking at this large section as I've said, and it's important before we dig into that to grasp this bigger theme that's going on, these sevens, because it's important as we sort of see the nitty-gritty of what's happening that we know what John is trying to represent in putting these things together. We've seen the importance of seven already throughout Revelation. We've seen the seven churches, and that is an example 
that's really helpful for us to understand what seven means. We've looked at seven meaning complete, perfect, the fullness, seven representing the fullness, the whole picture. So when we read about the seven churches, we, we learn that actually these seven churches, although yes, individual and were relevant in their time, were two specific churches. They also represent what God is saying to the church globally, historically, through the ages. That was the meaning of seven in that context. So as we look at these texts, bear in mind that as we're thinking about history unfolding before our eyes, this scroll opening up, that we're looking at a complete picture, the whole picture, the full opening of the scroll of history that we're living through. It's tempting to read these texts as a sort of chronological account of history, a literal account. And we've seen time and time again throughout Revelation, that's not a lens that is helpful to us. But I wonder this morning whether it's helpful to think of John more as a a composer than a historian, a musical composer. He has, John, this common theme weaving throughout the sevens, the seven series, this sort of message of warning to those who do not worship God and a message of hope for those who do. That's the common theme reinstated across these series, these seven series. And if it were a piece of music, the, the melody, the rhythm, the instruments even might change But the theme remains the same. The theme holds it together. If John is wanting to unveil reality, it's like each series of seven is a variation that adds to that final composition, this big piece of music, this crescendo. And it moves us closer. Each bit moves us closer to the end, not chronologically, Not as if we're starting here and this is when that's going to happen and that's when that's going to happen and that means that's going to happen. It's as if these different layers are building, these different perceptions and perspectives of reality leading us to this final and climactic confrontation between God and his people and Satan and his allies. So think of John as a composer, as an artist. We're going to dig in to the text. You ready? So, the seven seals. The first thing to notice with the seven seals, we have actually read those ones this morning, and you might have noticed that the lamb is the one that opens the first seal. It's important for us to notice this because these whole series are pretty horrifying, honestly. When you really read them, when you really take in what is being said here, It's pretty scary stuff. And it's important that we know that we're being led by the Lamb. He is sovereign and is leading this unveiling. And what is being unveiled in these symbolic seals, always remember, signs, symbols, symbolic seals, is a greater picture of reality. That is what he is leading us to see. The opening of the seven seals explains why what is happening in our world today is happening. In these seals, we read through accounts of conquests, of violence, of famine, of death, of earthquakes. That's not unfamiliar territory for us, is it? We see it on our news every day. If we're familiar with it, 
And why, if these, if these seals represent evil being unleashed on the earth, why do we think in this text, in this narrative, why, why do we get the four horsemen of the apocalypse appearing in these texts? Why, why are they appearing? What gives them permission to appear? Well, let's go back to the very first verse. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come, come. Now the four creatures, the four living creatures here, represent the whole cosmos. The whole of animate creation is crying, come. We say it every week, if not more. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. That's our prayer. We're joining with the cry of heaven. The whole of creation is crying, Jesus, come. We hear echoes of it in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This verb come is crucial to the whole of this section of scripture. The book of Revelation itself is bracketed by the verb come. Revelation 1, 7, look, he is coming. And Revelation 22, right at the end of the book, verse 20, yes, Jesus says, I am coming. Now this verb is written in the present continuous tense, which which means that Jesus isn't, it's not a future thing. Jesus is coming. He is coming even now. He is coming. And the seals are opened in a response to the four creatures, the four living creatures calling for Jesus Christ to come and fully establish the kingdom of God on earth. It's a response. The evil that we read about in this text is a response It's a bit strange, isn't it? We're crying, come Lord Jesus, and yet we get the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What on earth is going on there? Well, those of you who've followed Jesus for a while now will know that when the kingdom comes, there is always resistance to it. Daryl Johnson says this, in praying for Jesus Christ, the reigning lamb, to fully establish his kingdom on earth, things start happening. The kingdom breaks, begins to break in, changing things, upsetting the status quo, unmasking idols, flushing out evil, and meeting resistance. And the followers of the lamb get caught in the crunch. You might have noticed a strange thing about these four horsemen in the first four seals, they're wearing crowns. They're wearing crowns. Why would they be wearing crowns? Does that mean they're reigning in some way? Well, what's important to notice in this text is that the crowns are given. They're given. Temporarily, they are given. The authority and the ownership is still Jesus's. Again, Daryl writes, the the chaos and the violence are not the signs that the lamb is not on the throne. They are the signs of the lamb's justice. 
Here is the way to peace, Jesus says. My way, my way of suffering love, my way of the lamb slain. But if you don't want my way, I will grant you your way. If you don't want my way, I will grant you your way. As Johnny said last week, I think, evil will destroy itself. Evil will destroy itself. But it will try and take everyone and everything down with it. And the church are not exempt from the suffering that is caused by evil. We see it directly in seal 5 being opened. It reads, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And the following verse gives us the cry of the church, the cry of the martyrs, of the saints who have suffered under the hand of evil. How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until your judgment, you judge the inhabitants of the earth? And in this passage, they're told to wait a little bit longer. Seal 6, again, opens up for us what it means for earth to be given over to itself. Creation is quaking as a response for its own desire for autonomy. You see, the judgment is not imposed externally. We, we get this image of apocalypse in films, don't we, that it's like meteorites and burning sulfur, God attacking the earth in some way. But what is un, un, unveiled to us in this passage is actually that it's more of an internal. It's an internal problem. God simply says, okay, you have it your way. If you don't want my will and my way, God's saying, I'll take my hands off the cosmos. And seal six is what happens when God takes his hands off the cosmos. It collapses in on itself. Rowan William talks about judgment as a, a freeing of humanity to be truly itself in both directions. For those who have chosen to follow Jesus, judgment is a freeing from anything that would hold you back from being able to follow him. But for those who are not in Christ and who choose not to be, it's allowing you to be what you desire. And that's without God. God is saying, I won't force myself upon you. You want to be your own God. Okay. I will step back and let you try and hold it all together. And since we cannot do that, it all disintegrates. And we get this horrifying picture across the seven series. The seals finishes in this section with that horrible question in verse 17. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand? Well, we come to our first interlude, and it's a breath of fresh air in the midst of this picture because it, it talks to us about who can stand. It talks to us about the sealed. We don't have time to get into it today, but a little bit just to whet your appetite. It tells of those who have the seal of the living God. Chapter 7 unpacks, yes, symbolically. It's really important we remember this is symbolic. Who those people are who have the seal of God. 
Verse 14 tells us that these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The ones who have come through the great tribulation. The crushing pressure of two kingdoms colliding, the great tribulation. Do you remember Thlipsis? That crushing pressure that the Smyrnans went through? This is the same word here, Thlipsis. Those who have survived the crushing pressure of these two kingdoms colliding. And we're living in that great tribulation, are we not? We don't have time to unpack it more, but... A word to the wise, don't get caught up in these, these sort of two sections, in the, the numbers, in the, the literal account. Most scholars agree that these two accounts are actually two accounts of the same picture of what it means to be sealed in the blood of the Lamb. So, moving on to chapter 8. At the beginning of chapter 8, we, we get the final seventh seal opened, and then this strange moment occurs There was silence in heaven for half an hour. There was silence in heaven. Is this just a a break, a dramatic pause? What's the purpose in it? Well, we know that worship has been going on in heaven for eternity. So for that to be silenced is a very important thing for us to notice. We read that the prayers of the saints in heaven and on earth are gathered up before the throne at this point. The prayers of the saints, your prayers, my prayers, the prayers of every follower of Jesus throughout the ages are gathered up in this moment of silence. It's a sacred moment and we need to notice it because we need to notice its importance. Your prayers, your intercessions matter to what is unveiled in this narrative, to what is being rolled out before us in this scroll. John sees an angel at the altar holding a golden censer. To the smoke of the censer are added the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people. John then sees the angel take fire from the altar, fill the censer with it, and throw it to earth. And so we come to the second of our sevens, the seven trumpets. Don't worry, we're picking up a pace through them now. These trumpets contain a a limited warning, a limited judgment. God is judging evil. And although this is a hard read, it is good news. God is answering the cry that we've already heard from his people. How long, Lord, until you judge How long till you avenge our blood? There is judgment on the resistance. This resistance that's insisting on building a kingdom without God. There is judgment on it. The first four trumpets are simply nature let loose. Nature without bounds. Acting not as they were intended to be. Trumpet five is the demonic forces let loose, the pit of hell opened. 
It's like God saying, well, if you're going to glorify violence, if you're going to go after selfish means, what else can I do if that is what you're choosing? Trumpet six is fear of invasion that threatens the empire. This idea of humans fighting humans. Humans fearing humans. This sounding of the seven trumpets is is an answer to the cry of justice that comes out of the seven seals. But it's interestingly, it's not a total judgment. There's a purpose here. It's only partial. We get this phrase, a third, a third. And that symbolizes this partial sense of the judgment. It's, it's as if this is a warning, a trumpet sound. That was what they were used for so often in, Old, in the Old Testament scriptures. A warning. Turn around is what these trumpets are saying. Turn around. Turn to God. This, these trumpets are the mercy of God on show. Warning the world of the total judgment of a life without him and what that would look like. The angels are blowing the trumpets to get our attention. And God's mercy, I think he's shown beautifully in verse chapter 9, verse 6, where God holds back death. It says those who wanted to die, couldn't die. And there's something in that that God did not want to give up. He does not want to give up on unrepentant hearts. That is his heart, to save every last one. And yet, some hearts get harder. And then we come to our second interlude, which again is a breather to come out of the seven series. Chapters 10 and 11, before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we have this interlude where John is told this sort of figuratively to eat the scroll, and then the second scene about two witnesses to the people. Both are symbolic of what the church's role is as as this scroll is being revealed, is being opened. The church's role here, we see, is to prophesy, to call people to repent and believe the good news, to preach the gospel. Let us not forget there is good news. There is good news. The best news we have to offer the world, that there is a God, that there is a living God, a loving God, that this is God's world and it only works God's way because he created it like that. And if we violate his way, if we don't want to live under his rule, the whole of the cosmos starts breaking in on itself. But there is a way through this. God in Jesus has made a way. That is why we have to keep going back to Revelation 4 and 5. Who was worthy to open the scroll? The the slain lamb. Jesus has made a way. He can lead us back on track. There is hope for every single soul on this earth. The way back is the way towards him. Run towards the one who has the right to judge. He's on the throne. 
And yet he's chosen to be there as the lamb that was slain for your sin and mine. Our job is to declare that truth, to witness to the work that God has done in us. So this brief interlude finishes and the seventh trumpet is blown. Another unveiling, another seeing opens up. John takes us further into this cosmic battle and we've already looked at this particular passage in chapters 12 and 13 around the dragon and the beast and the woman and all of that. So go back to Mark's sermon a couple of weeks ago if you want to get into that. The, the fundamentals are things are not as they seem in that. So we finally reach the final of our sevens, the seven bowls of wrath and the seven filled with the seven plagues. I mean, wrath, let's be honest, is not something we find easy to think or talk about. But it does feature heavily here, so we can't ignore it. In fact, this section, these bowls are bracketed again by wrath, which demonstrates, it's a a literary device to demonstrate how important wrath and understanding the wrath of God here is. Leon Morris describes wrath as God's strong opposition to all that is evil, a strong and settled opposition arising out of God's very nature. God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. That's his wrath. So when we're reading through these series and we're seeing this evil on display, we can know that the heart of God is for that to come to a total, remember seven, a total end. In what follows in these seven plagues, we see actually a similar pattern emerging, the same order as the seals and the trumpets. Why is this? Why are they all the same? What's, the, what's, what's trying to be said here? Well, it's going back to the idea of John being a composer. Rather than the seven seals, the trumpets, and the bowls being these linear, sort of literal chronological events, we're actually seeing the same thing happen from three different perspectives. The seals, the seals are the scroll from the perspective of a suffering church. That's why we get that cry, how long, O Lord? The seals, the seven seals, are the scroll from the perspective of a suffering church. The trumpets are the scroll from the perspective of the world, as the world is being called to repentance. And the bowls poured out, well, they're from the perspective of the throne, the throne of God, the temple. This is a rich and complex piece of music, as you might be picking up. And it heightens in its imagery as these perspectives are given. And again, seven is significant because it's symbolic. It's symbolic of being given the whole picture from every perspective. We only get our one set of eyes, don't we? And yet here is a gift to us, although it might not feel like it. An unveiling, a seeing of how things truly are. It's also 
a warning that when we ask for the kingdom of God to come, we need to know what we're asking. When you ask for God's kingdom to come, you can't ask for part of it. The reason seven is significant here, across this swathe of text, is because we're talking about our whole kingdom of God, the complete kingdom coming, the perfect will of God, the fullness of his kingdom, which includes repentance, it includes suffering, it includes judgment and justice. And the slain lamb who is seated on the throne. There is a good kingdom coming. There is a good king on the throne. And we can trust him. We can trust that he knows what he's doing as he opens the seven seals, sounds the seven trumpets, and pours out the seven bowls. But what's our role in all of this as the church of God this Trinity Church. Well, I think these passages have something to say about our role. If we are called, which we are, to reign with the reigning lamb, we've seen that back in Revelation 5, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's you, that's me. That's every Christian who's ever walked the earth. That is our job. What do priests do then? If you're meant to be a priest to this world? What's your role as a priest of Christ's kingdom on earth? Well, I think we've already seen one of them. Intercession. Remember those prayers of God's people. It's referenced multiple times across the book that the prayers of God's people play a significant part in the outcome of this war, of this contest between two conflicting kingdoms. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. You are not fighting against any person on this earth. You are fighting against powers and principalities. And if that is true, we have, we have a kingdom to bring. We have an advancement to bring. If we're asleep on the job, there's no neutral ground the enemy will take the ground. Our prayers are significant in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Secondly, we're called to witness. Just as we've seen in that short interlude in Revelation 10 and 11, we're called in the midst of the battle to declare and witness to the world that he is the only one found worthy, that he is the only Lord What does it look like to witness? Well, proclamation is certainly a good starting point. Proclaiming the gospel, the good news. That is our job. Calling people to repent, to see that God is their father in heaven who delights in them so much that he sent his son to them so that they could eternally have access to the father by the spirit. That is the good news of the king on the throne. But witness also looks like worship, orientating your life around one God, Lord Jesus. That is why worship is our weapon. 
It is our witness to a world who has their priorities way out of skew. And we all know the temptation of that. It's a daily repentance for us all. So intercession, witness, and finally, martyrdom. The Greek word for witness is martyrs. The way of living as a witness in the clashing of two kingdoms will mean a crucifixion of sorts. Whether that's figurative or literal, only time will tell. But one way, one way or another, we will all experience the death that Jesus experienced. We heard from our sister from North Korea last week who suffered greatly for her faith in Jesus. Her husband died as a martyr for his faith. And there are countless others like him. The suffering of the saints is very real. And don't forget that we get caught in the crunch of evil. And that leads us to the how. How do we reign? How do we reign in this coming kingdom? The now and the not yet. Jesus is coming. How do we reign as he comes? Well, to enter into the suffering of the Lamb is the only way. It's the only way to reign with him. He's only given us one way. But suffering we know is not the end of the story. Many of you have seen the first Narnia film back in the day. I was a kid, I think, when it came out. There's a terrible scene in that film which marks Scarby for life, I think, where every demonic creature in Narnia gathers to taunt Aslan to the table where he ultimately is killed by the knife of the witch. It's a horrible, haunting scene. And it's an image, a picture of some of what we, have, what we are reading about in this passage in Revelation today. And then what follows this haunting scene is a beautiful one. It's a beautiful scene of love expressed in grief of Susan and Lucy as they, as they grieve over Aslan's death. There's a suffering for them too. And there's this surprising moment when the mice come out, I don't know if you remember them, they start to nibble at the cords of Aslan as he lies there in the grave. Remember, all of creation, all of creation is waiting, is groaning. And then the deep magic unfolds before our eyes as Aslan returns in majesty. He is coming. We cry, come Lord Jesus, and all of hell resists. All of hell resists. Yet we know the end of the story, and don't worry, we're getting to it. Come back next week. But in the meantime, in the meantime, as our good friend Daryl puts it, we choose to do as he does. Walk into the face of evil. Declare the truth. Intercede for mercy and take whatever comes. 
Because if we want the whole kingdom, all of the sevens, if we truly want to reign with Jesus, it's going to cost us everything because it costs him everything. But ours is not a faith that ends in death. It begins in death and ends in eternal life. So we end as we begin. Come, Lord Jesus. Come in fullness. Bring your kingdom. Bring it fully. No matter what that looks like. Why don't you stand with me? There's a whole lot there, and I, I just want to invite the Spirit of God to come and meet each one of us individually in where this contest, this clashing of kingdom lands for you this morning. The band are going to come and we're going to worship and pray for one another. But we just want to invite you, Spirit of God, to search our hearts, search our minds. Lord, bring this down for us this morning. Bring what are such huge themes across the history of the world. Bring it into focus for us in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you would you reveal in our hearts, God, the, the rub, the contest, the conflict. You might be experiencing a very real attack of the enemy this morning. It might be an attack in your mind. It might be an attack in your family, the contest you're feeling in your workplace. Holy Spirit, would you unlock? Unlock our hearts. We'd love to pray for, for anyone who particularly feels in a contest, in that battle. This morning, we want to stand along each, alongside each other as we all cry, come Lord Jesus, whatever it may cost. So if that is you, I just invite you to, to come forward. There'll be people here to pray. We'd love to pray for you. Just as, as we close in worship, I know that many of you will have to go get your children soon. Feel free to bring them back up here. If you just come out to the front as we worship, we'd love to pray for you.